worship team, and uh, thank you, church. Again, I know I've said this before, but I'm so thankful for a church that sings loud on Sunday morning. It's a joy to be able to join in on that, and it's always good when I remember to shut my mic off before we sing, because then there'd be nothing to thank you for, because it'd be covered up by something terrible. Oh, my goodness. That almost happened today. Uh, you might be understanding that. So happy Palm Sunday. Um, I hope that you've gathered a little bit as to what Palm Sunday is pointing towards. As we sang a lot about His Lordship and how great of a Lord He is, I'm so thankful to be able to sing that because I believe that. And if you're not familiar with the story of what Palm Sunday came from, we'll talk about that for a moment because it's going to point to where we end up in the text here in a few moments. But during Jesus' ministry, he entered what we call Holy Week, but before Holy Week, he arrived at Jerusalem, knowing what he was there to do was to be a sacrificial lamb. And as he arrived to Jerusalem, fulfilling prophecies literally step by step as he neared Jerusalem, he was granted by chance, some of which we just sang, Hosanna on the highest, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel they say. And see, what they saw was Jesus was arriving as a king because that's what they were looking for, was a Messiah, a king. And so they were recognizing that. But it wasn't the type of king that they were expecting, right? You and I know how the story goes. What they had in their mind as a king was something who was going to rescue, someone who was going to rescue them from the oppression of Rome, who was going to clear up all the dysfunction that existed and how they related to God through this really kind of complicated um, and, and impacted by man, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, system of sacrifice and worship, they were relying on someone to come and be a king who's going to take care of all that. And he did, but not how they expected. See, because he was coming as a lamb also. So we have this idea of Jesus who arrives as the Lord and the lamb. And kind of the opposite dichotomy is true for you and I, right? We really hold to the fact that he is the lamb and what he said on the cross in John 19, it is finished, is something we cling to. That is a sacrificial lamb sacrificed on Calvary, shedding his blood to purchase us for God, clean us for God so we could have a relationship with God. He is the lamb. We hold to that, but we really wrestle with and need to spend a little bit more time talking about how he's the Lord. There's this territory in my heart and probably yours too that we don't want to give over and we hold back control over something pastor nathan talks a lot about how it's my kingdom come my will be done versus your kingdom come your will be done so we could talk about that for palm sunday and that would be appropriate it's called the triumphal entry it's a time where all the gospels cover the same story and the same part of the story where jesus arrives at jerusalem to be king and to be lamb as Pastor Nathan and I were talking about this Sunday, though, one option he gave me or offered me that we could do and spend time in God's Word for is to share with you something that we've talked about with the youth group this year. One of my responsibilities is teaching on Sunday nights with our youth group, and I enjoy it. This year has been pretty challenging, and you'll see why here in a moment. What we did was we asked the students, what's a question, if you could ask an anonymous question and have it answered in a youth lesson, what's something you would like talked about? So last year and the beginning of this year, we took in questions and they wrote down things that they were worried about or concerned about, about how God works and who he is, what our lives are like in light of temptation and trial and pain 
And you'd be impressed if you saw this list of questions. I've shared it with some of you. You might have seen some of them or, or heard me talk about them, but you would be impressed. You should be proud of our students. And so some of the hardest studying I've had to do was to figure out how in 25, 30 minutes to answer for these teens who really, they really want to know how God works and who he is and how they can live right. How can they serve God out of love and not obligation? That's one of the questions they ask. So the question that I landed on tonight, I'm going to first, I'm going to read it to you just how it was submitted by the students. So you can hear how they, how they worded it. I don't know who wrote this. You're probably out there or listening online. But we're going to look at this question and then like we did with the youth group, I'm going to break it down into a couple different topics or, or, or stages of the question that I think will be helpful for us and we'll drill down on the last kind of remaining issue, what I think is the heart of this question that this student asks. And you'll see, Lord willing, by the time that we're done, it's a question that you're asking. It's a question that has caused a lot of your friends or family or people that you grew up with to walk away from Christ, to shut the door on their faith, to give up. And my hope is by God's will that he would use this time in, our, in his word to uh, convince you of the truth, show you the truth that uh, answers this question and it helps us to do the exact opposite. It helps us to trust him even more, to strengthen our relationship with him even more as a result of this question. So the question is, I'm going to read it, but it'll be on the slides uh, behind me. Um, goes like this. If Jesus is able to change us into better people when we accept him as Savior, then why can't he just make all of us into perfect people and get rid of all struggling? That's a good one. Right? If Jesus is able to change us into better people when we accept him as our Savior, then why can't he just make all of us into perfect people and get rid of all struggling? So I told you I'd break this down and kind of show you what we did with the youth group and then drill down and kind of the last part here. So first we said, well, is Jesus changing us into better people? Is he doing that? Is that part of the relationship that we have with him? And it gave us an awesome opportunity to talk about he's not just making you a better person on the outside, he's renewing your mind. He's changing the way you think. He's changing your priorities and assumptions from how you used to think and the choices you used to make to how he thinks, how he acts. That's why we call ourselves Christians. We're Christ-like, not only in action, but in thought. So he is making us into better people, but it's even better than that. He's changing our minds, our way of living down to the core. So he's doing that, and that leads us to the next part of this question then. Why can't he make us all into perfect people? And I think the implication here is instantly. Why isn't there a switch, right? When you accept Christ, everything's perfect. Like, maybe unlike me or like me, you don't fail anymore. You don't sin. There's no illness. There's no harm. And in fact, somehow you're protected against all the harm from other people because you're in Christ. Now, you are protected eternally, and I don't want to diminish that, but you know better than I do, or as well as I do, I should say, that you're not perfect instantly. That's why we gathered around God's word every week, so that we can become more like him in our thinking, have that renewal of our mind. It gave us an awesome opportunity to talk about sanctification, what God's doing in your life to prove that the work that we hold to on the cross actually does something for you and in you. So yeah, we talk about how the switch doesn't flip instantly. You're not a perfect person. And in fact, the Gospels relate the one known story of a perfect man who sinned, who never sinned, who, who was sinless, living on earth in an imperfect earth and shows us how terrible it can be to be perfect in an imperfect earth. Jesus didn't sin, didn't cause any of this harm that came on him and yet was betrayed. 
So if you've been betrayed and you wish that you could be perfect instantly when you come to Christ, know that Jesus was perfect and he was betrayed. Jesus was weary. If you think that, that you'll have instantaneous strength, both physical and spiritual, God does promise your strength, you strength, but we're going to talk about that passage here in a moment, or one of those passages here in a moment. But Jesus was weary and he was perfect. If you've lost friends because you came to Christ and are following him in your life, Jesus knows better than you what it's like to lose friends. Being, be, being betrayed by his own friends to death. So we talked about how even when you're a perfect person, that doesn't eliminate suffering. So really, at bottom, at end, the question is, why doesn't God rid the world of all suffering, all struggling, all weakness? That's a good question. I look forward to the day, if, if you believe God's word is true, like I do, there actually is a day where he removes all the struggling and all the suffering. But in the meantime, when I know him and he is... I am his, why doesn't he remove all the struggling? That's where I think this question is headed, right? If you're a Christian, you can understand why you're not perfect all of a sudden. Instantaneously, that switch doesn't flip. And you know that the world wouldn't be perfect around you even if you were. But why doesn't he get rid of all the struggling? So if it's okay with you, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the text that we went to for this part of the question with the youth group. One of the two texts that we went to with the youth group. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you want to turn there, the verses that we'll cover are 7 through 10, and we'll hear what Paul learns as he asks or encounters a very similar question. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that I know you'll send your Holy Spirit to reveal truth from your word. But I ask that they remember what you show them and remember your words and your truth. Because I know that's how you're going to sanctify us. I know that's how you're going to work to change the way our minds work, the assumptions we make about you, the decisions we make towards others. I know that your word is the only hope that that would be done in our lives. And I just pray that you cause my friends, my church family, to remember that part of our time together this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So ultimately the question is, what is the purpose of the struggle? Before we get to that answer, though, I need to give you kind of an image for how I think Paul talks about this question. One of my favorite things to do with our family is to take walks in the woods together. I'm, I'm hoping it dries up enough to go do that this afternoon. And it's inevitable. Every time we go for a walk, whether it be out in the woods behind our house or out in the state game area, we run into um, Allegan's finest thorny bush multi-flora rose. Do you know what I'm talking about? Long, spindly green vine with rose thorns on it. I call it nature's barbed wire. Sometimes you'll be hiking along as a family and it's inevitable. At some point, you'll hear, Mom, Dad, help! And either Jack, Charlotte, or Emery will be stuck somewhere on the trail with a piece of that thorny rose wrapped around their jacket, wrapped around their arm, around their leg. It's inevitable, without fail. It's part of the walk. We just plan on it. It's going to happen. At some point, they're going to be stuck and they're going to call out for us, Come here, come here, help me, help me, help me. And you have to kind of come and assess the situation. And, and sometimes we can just say, okay, back up. Take a step back. Step away from it. You'll be okay. Sometimes it's a little bit more involved. And it's kind of like probably surgery. You're pulling the vine off the leg and off the arm because it's kind of bound them up and really started to stick them. And sometimes the cries are more pain than they are frustration. But one way or another, this happens as a part of almost every walk. And if you encounter this frequently on a walk, it gets kind of wearying. It gets kind of tiring, like, oh, again, like, of course. 
And you know, it's not only multiflora rose. Of course, as you're pushing branches out of your face, you're wondering if it's gonna be a hawthorn branch with those nice two-inch thorns. And you wonder, am I just gonna put my hand in the wrong place one of these days? And if you've walked in some of the game area, there's honey locust trees, and those are particularly despicable. They have those seven, eight inch spikes that come out of the trunk with a cluster of more spikes, like one wasn't enough, so there's more there sticking out of the trunk. And you say, from afar, I don't know what I would ever do if I ran into that. I don't know what that would even be like. How, how can you come back from that? You see, the picture that I'm pointing out here, and you probably understand this, because this has been your experience, is that thorns are an inevitable part of these types of walks. And thorns are an inevitable part of our lives, our walk. Paul encounters this often in his ministry. And in 2 Corinthians, he's defending himself against something called super apostles that had come into the Corinthian church. He had already visited them, already made relationships, had sent them a letter or two. And now he's writing about these super apostles who are kind of shoving Paul and his leadership aside as they take over the Corinthian church. And he starts in chapter 12 by telling them about an incredible revelation that he had of what heaven's like. And he was told things that he can't sum up in words. And he said, you know, I could brag about special stuff too. I could brag about what I've been shown and what I've been told, but I'm going to brag about something different. Because something happened in my life, something happened in, in my ministry that's kept me humble. And so we're going to see this passage about how he encounters the question, why the thorns? How, how is God using thorns in his life to teach him something? And he points us to a truth about who God is and how God works. I believe it's how he works in our lives, and I hope this is encouraging for you as we read. So to keep me from becoming conceited, he says on the hind side of describing this vision of heaven, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Again, that's that third-party story he tells of when he was taken up to heaven and shown and told things that he can't even put into words. A thorn was given me in the flesh. The word here he uses, thorn, is more like that honey locust spine, like a tent stake, like a boundary stake, something jabbing into his core. And he says, it was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Does this phrase bother anybody? If it was given to him, who was it given by? Well, it was given by God with a purpose. We'll talk about that in a moment. But how is it also referred to as a messenger of Satan? Well, by this point, you're probably thinking about a thorn in your life. I don't really have to give you too many examples. I don't know for, for you if it was some type of loss of a job or a relationship or if it was some person in your life who's consistently present and is a thorn. Or maybe for you, it's illness. Debilitating illness can be a thorn. These are all examples of what commentators think Paul's thorn might have been. But if you have that thorn, you're thinking about that thorn, you also know that what the devil likes to do, because the word here, Satan, is accuser, adversary, what the devil likes to do is try to slide lies into your life along that thorn. He says, I know where you hurt. Let me tell you, this is because you're alone. Or I know how this hurts because you're weak. Or I know that this hurts this way because of a mistake you made years ago. I know this hurts really, really bad because God doesn't care. He's obviously left you on your own. I think what Paul is pointing out about this being a messenger of Satan, guys, is he knows that lies accompany these types of thorns. 
But the thorn itself isn't the lie. The thorn is something God has done to keep him from becoming conceited. To keep him humble as a servant of God. So his purpose, God's purpose in whatever's going on in your life might be different. It might not be because you're headed towards arrogance. Although we'll talk about how that is, how that is deadly to your faith in a moment. But just know that those lies are not a part of what God is doing. They are coming in because the accuser and the adversary is going to take advantage of any circumstance or situation to tell you lies. And that's what they are. They're lies. So let's continue. To keep me from becoming conceited. We're just on the beginning stages of a a study of the first couple chapters of Revelation. The seven churches of Revelation is what we'll be reading about. A church named Laodicea is talked about by Christ towards chapter 3, I think. And he says, you're neither hot or cold. Remember that? You're neither hot or cold. You become lukewarm and I spew you out of my mouth. And then he quotes what that church says. He says, this is what your problem is. You have said, I am rich. I need nothing. They became conceited. Their life had become comfortable. There were some good things. And they said, we're doing pretty good. And Jesus is like, this is deadly to our relationship. And Jesus knows this about his relationship with Paul. And Paul is realizing God's purpose for Paul in this thorn is to keep him from becoming conceited. This means elevating yourself more than you're worthy, which is quite deadly to your faith. So the first thing I want us to kind of focus on and and kind of the answer to why is there struggling? Why is there weakness? One One of the things that we can hold to is that God is working in your weakness. Paul will use the word weakness here in a moment. See, this counteracts one of the lies. I don't know what the lies are that you hear, but one of the lies that I often hear is God's not doing anything with you. He's not, look at, you, you, you struggle with this. How could he use you? You screwed this up? You messed up this way? No, he's not doing anything. He is not working in your life, and I want you to know if you are purchased by him, he is doing something in your life, regardless of what lie you might be hearing. It's impossible for him to not be doing something in your life if you belong to him. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the central truth, I believe, of this passage is God is working in your weakness. Paul continues, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That pleaded is like when my kid is stuck in the thorns and he says, Dad, come right here and help me out. Come to my side. They're summoning you to your side. That's what Paul says. I asked God to come right to my side and help me with what hurts the most. And he didn't tell me, no, I'm not going to help you. He didn't tell me, no, this is because you screwed up. Watch what Jesus himself says back to Paul. But just know, this isn't because Paul lacked in praying over this. This isn't because Paul didn't know how to ask. Paul asked to completion. Paul asked to perfection. God, please come to my side. Come to where I'm at and deal with this pain. The word Lord here, what we've been singing about is king, owner. He's sovereign over this. So recognizing that sovereignty Jesus responds to Paul. Paul says, I want nothing more than this to just leave, be out of my life. That's really what we want, right? Is the solution is, get it out of my life. And Jesus says the solution is far more powerful than that. I'm going to work in spite of that thorn. He, Jesus, said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I have Jesus' words here in italics because I want you to see how brief Jesus' response to Paul is, but how profound what he says is. My grace, my unmerited favor. Paul, you're going to say that you're weak? That's okay because you can earn this anyways. It doesn't matter how strong you are on your own strength. You can't earn the type of grace that I'm going to show you. 
The same grace that came in the form of Christ and died on the cross. We didn't earn it. We can't maintain it on our own. But he came in our place. Jesus responds to Paul and says, my grace is sufficient. It will be enough. You will survive this because it's my grace. If it was only on you and only up to you, you wouldn't. But my grace is sufficient for you. So I think to help you with this statement, if you write in your Bible, maybe you could write your name over the word you. If you don't like writing in your Bible, I wonder if you would read this aloud with me. I'll read the white words, and then if you'd read the yellow words together. I want you to see that when you encounter these thorns in your life, that God's grace is sufficient for you also. So let's read this together. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for, now say your name, Brendan. My grace, my abundant, undeserved favor is sufficient for you. So God is working in your weakness, and the first way he's doing that is by giving you grace, not asking you to earn your way out or work your way out or solve it for yourself, but by giving you grace. Second way God is working in your weakness has to do with a word that Jesus chose to respond to Paul with here. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Made perfect here is is not the first time Jesus has used this phrase, this word for made perfect. On Friday, we're going to celebrate or observe, I should say, the crucifixion. When Jesus, in John chapter 19, hung on the cross and with his last breath said, it is finished. This truth that we hold on to is the core of what we believe is that our sins are paid for forever, going forward. This type of word in its tense means it's finished now and permanently. That's, that's what we cling to as the core of our relationship with Christ is that that salvation is not going to lapse. It's not going to fail. The debt's not going to come back up and be collected from us, that that debt has already been collected and paid by Christ and through Christ. So I think it's not an accident that Jesus uses the same word here and says, Paul, you remember how finished Jesus made things? That's how perfect, that's how finished my strength and my power is going to be in your life. And it's going to be in this space of weakness where you feel like you are on the floor and can't do anything about it. That's where I'm going to make things perfect through my power. So God is finishing his work in you. We say on the cross, Christ finished his work for you. He purchased you fully. You belong to God. He died all the way, rose all the way. There was nothing left undone. What Paul is learning from Jesus Christ himself in this passage is that Jesus is finishing the work in Paul through this weakness, through this thorn. He's making you more like him, more reliant on him. Lest you become like so many others and like Laodicea where they say, I have need of nothing. I'm rich. Jesus' criticism for Laodicea in that passage is, you need to find your riches in me. God uses these thorns in this type of time in your life to show you his riches, to show you his grace. Moving on, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Paul's response to what Jesus has told him is, I'm going to brag about how I'm weak. Not because it's anything good that I've done, because I know if I feel like this, if this kind of thing has happened to me, Paul is shipwrecked, beaten to death, bit by a poisonous stake, lied about, slandered, chased out of town. If all of these things are going to happen to me and I could be this weak, what God is going to do is going to be amazing. If he has boiled me down to this point and, and I am utterly dependent on him, 
I'm going to be able to brag about what he does in that circumstance. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be better than this is bad. So he boasts. He's going to glory about this weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What God is doing in this resting of his power, Paul could have said, uh, the same word can be translated to set a tent up over. He's going to set up shop over you with his power. And that gives me peace because that means if God is covering me and living inside me, we're told that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of us. If Christ's power is over me and living inside me, then that means all of these thorns, anything that happens in my life has come through Christ first. It comes through Christ into my life, which means he has a purpose for it and he knows what it's like. It's no shock to me that Paul uses the word thorns here, talking to and about the Savior who wore thorns for him, who knows what thorns, literal and figuratively, feel like in your life. Christ himself experienced all the same betrayals and harm and death that so many of us are afflicted with. And because of that, this covering of Christ's power over us tells me, tells Paul, can tell you that nothing comes into your life without going through Christ first, without his permission and authority. So God is working in your weakness, not only by giving you grace and by finishing his work in you. He finished his work for you on the cross and now he's sanctifying you, changing the way you think by pushing, pushing these thorns through your life with his grace attached. And he's covering you with his power. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. What Paul is saying here, content, means he's going to say what is bad is actually good. He's going to reframe the way he thinks about these circumstances. He's going to say, what you meant for evil, God means for good. He's going to say, I'm content with weaknesses. This is the takeaway he has from what Christ told him. Insults, because people were insulting him, even in their own church. The super apostles had come in to the Corinthian church and said, Paul, he must be a failure. Look at all the hard stuff he goes through. He must be doing something wrong. Look at all the hard stuff he goes through. I told the teens, if you're going through hard things as a result of your faith, it means you're living it out the right way. If people are leaving you and insulting you because you choose Christ over what they want you to do, it means you're doing it the right way. Paul is saying, humbly, it's a humble boast, I think they can call it. Hey, these insults, I can be content in them because they mean that I'm doing things the right way. Hardships. You want to read about some difficult journeys. Look at Paul's missionary journeys. It was not without challenge and, and destruction and hardship. Not to mention Paul had to have missionary support to survive. So he was supported by other churches to visit Corinth. His life was hard. He says, I can look at that differently because what I know God is doing. Persecutions. Jesus, as I said, was the perfect person and was still persecuted. Paul knows that he's sharing in Christ's sufferings and he can change the way he thinks about persecution because he knows what Christ is doing in them. And calamities. There was outright disaster in Paul's ministry. People abandoned him. People severed their relationship with him. He had been shipwrecked more than once, bit by a poisonous snake. He knows what disaster in life looks like. And he says, I can think differently about this disaster because of what Christ has done. And then this, this line that you probably already hold to because it's such a memorable line of Scripture. It might be underlined in your Bible. Paul says, the lesson here is, why does God not get rid of all struggling in our lives? Why instead of 
taking this thorn and making it leave me alone? Did he leave it and teach me through it? Boils down to this, for when I am weak, when I'm on the floor, powerless, I've got no answers, then I am strong. His strength will coexist, take the place of my weakness, and grow something in my life. It happens at the same time when I'm boiled down to nothing. So, God is working in your weakness. What can we do in light of that as we conclude this morning? How does this change tomorrow? Well, I think you probably already have done the first step, but if you haven't, we have to see where Paul started. How did he learn this from Christ to begin with? It was as a result of his prayer relationship with him. He says, I've prayed to the utmost. I've prayed completely about this. And then Jesus responded that my my grace is sufficient. My power, Paul, is made perfect in weakness. This is a result of him talking to God about it. So what, what I would encourage you to do is go back to where Paul started with God. And if you're encountering a thorn or you're in the midst of a thorn, and some of them are long-term, been around for a while type of thorns, Start where Paul started with prayer. This conversation between him and God. And boast. Paul boasted because he knew what it would benefit the Corinthian church to hear, hey, this person who's dealing with failures and weaknesses and harm and hurts has learned this from God through it. Some of you have done that in my life, told me about how God has taught you through some of the most painful circumstances and and done that amongst yourselves in this church family. And I would encourage you, keep doing that. Because in spite of the fact that the devil likes to be the accuser and the adversary and slide lies in along these thorns and say, hey, here's what you need to know about this, we get the opportunity to proclaim the truth about what God has done in the midst of these thorns in our lives. I encourage you, as Paul did, boast glory in knowing what God will do in your life. When we were talking about this topic in the youth group, I said um, one, of the, one of the ideas behind how I know God is working in these circumstances is Romans 8:28 all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose with the teens i boil it down to this god doesn't waste a single thing he doesn't waste time he doesn't waste people he doesn't waste the pain that you encounter here on earth he doesn't waste your victories he doesn't waste anything in creation all items in creation all things are subject to him and he's supreme over them he's sovereign over them Rather, I said, so if God doesn't waste anything, he's not wasting anything in your life and there's a purpose behind it, when you see what that is, share that. Boast as Paul did. Glory in what God has done. Not what Paul has done, but glory in what God is doing in your life. Last, I want you to uh, think about this passage and how it could help you further trust, more trust God. Go to the beginning of 2 Corinthians here. If you want to turn to it, I'll read the passage, though. We're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 as we close. Paul bookended this book with talking about trials and sufferings because they were a regular part of his ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul said, even when it got as bad as I thought, I was in prison and I thought, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. 
He said, I held on to the fact that death is not victorious over God. God is victorious over death because he raises the dead. What Paul's talking about Jesus in this passage, he says, I know that I don't even have to fear death itself because God, I serve a God who raises the dead as he raised his own son back to life. He says he's delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. So trust knowing God's delivered me before. Those thorns that I thought I had when I was a teenager that bound me up and wrapped around me like that vine in the woods, I'm still here. I've survived. God brought me through that and he taught me something. So continue to trust God knowing what he did deliver you from, he will deliver you from again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. What I know is this, is that God doesn't waste anything in your life, any opportunity to speak in your life and to teach you. But I also know that in the midst of thorns, the adversary, the accuser, likes to try to slip lies in alongside those. So today we've been reminded about the truth from God's word that his grace is sufficient. When we feel like we don't have enough, it's because he does. And his strength is working in us through his power that rests over you. So when you feel vulnerable and exposed and just beat down, know that he's covering you and has authority over your life if you are his. I hope that you can put your trust in him this morning. And if you haven't, if you say, I would like to be covered like this, and I, I would love the protection of Christ over my life and in my life, and to feel strength that's not for myself because I got nothing left. I'd love for you to know the Savior that saved Paul and saved me and did defeat death on our behalf. I encourage you to speak to one of us about that. I'd love to talk to you about that after this service. I'd love for you to come on Good Friday and on Easter where we really talk about how he defeats death. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for using thorns in our lives to teach us. God, I pray that we would not become conceited and that we'd not become self-sufficient without you. Father, I know we wrestle with lordship and giving you our hearts, and I just ask that you'd use this passage to Weigh on those of us who need to turn more of our heart over to you in the final bit of territory that somehow we don't trust you with, that we would trust you fully and see that you are good. And although we can't predict you or control you, you are dependable. God, just show that to your people this week as they go out and encounter new thorns, new struggles, new insults, new hardships. Show yourself faithful in their lives as you have in mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.